Uh, welcome to Dark Days Radio, and we are back with another interesting, insightful, exciting episode. Uh, this time, we are looking at Vazen, the mythic RP set and, uh, set in in the Nordic regions uh, in the Victorian period. In particular, we're looking at the current Kickstarter, which brings a new expansion to Vazen, which takes the setting away from the Nordics and brings it back to Britain and Ireland. We've got all of our local goblins. Uh, I'm one of your regular hosts, Chris, and of course I'm joined by David. Hello. Hello. And we're joined by James. Hi, nice to see everyone. And we're joined by guests from The Effect pa- uh, Podcast. We're joined by Dave. He is there. Dave, where are you? You're mute. And we're joined by Matthew, who you've just heard now. <laughs> I think this is going to hey, get confusing yeah, with two Daves. Other I'm sure Dave. will sort himself out in a moment, and we will get that in the edit there. Anyway, um, so, yes, as I said, the topic of discussion is, of course, the uh, currently running Kickstarter from Free League Publishing for Vazen, which is the uh, Mythic Tales in Britain and Ireland, uh, which, again, features the the, the artwork uh, that is uh, by uh, Johan... Uh, I'm going to pronounce... Egerkrams? Egerkrams. Yeah, uh, which is iconic of the book and the setting. And in particular, of course, um, writing on this book is uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay uh, Luminary, um, Graham Davis, who who, uh, who who I got to contribute with on, um, on the uh, Enemy Within campaign. So yeah. uh, it's going to be because gr- he's been writing a few things as well f- through the Free League um, community publishing portal on drive-thru rpg mm-hmm. so if you want to check out his work right away you can go there he's um, also on his own personal site he he does a lot of folklore writing as well so he he really knows his folklore stuff as well as his rpg stuff. he's like the perfect person to get to write this yeah yeah um and also you should check out uh, our friends over at the rookery um so that's graham uh, and andy law and uh, a whole other bunch of uh, ex, uh, you know, writers for Warhammer Fantasy and, and so forth. They have their own the publishing, who are slowly gearing up to to put out stuff for them. And I've guessed it on their stream a few times, uh, talking about Warhammer and self-publishing stuff. So stuff out. Uh, right, quickly game update. Uh, David, you've been running some Alien and Festive Days, and how's that been going? Yeah, so on on my own uh, Twitch channel, the Drunken Storyteller, I've been running um, Alien Destroyer of Worlds. Um, no one's yet dead. No one's died yet. Okay. Very disappointed. Horribly. Yeah, the game's gone horribly wrong because I'm. It's involving me rolling dice. So um, I've not managed to kill anybody yet. But it's it's fantastic fun. Everyone's having a lot of laugh on that one. And yeah, I've also run a few games of Vesson over on my my stream as well. So you can go check that out. Those are on YouTube. Um, I've done one based in in Scotland, which was written before the book came out. So there may be some issues with the new setting. I don't know. We'll see. And then I ran one at the weekend. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. rules are rules, whatever. Trust me. Uh, Trust me. It it bit me in the ass when um, I think we ran. um, We ran ran Soulbound, didn't we? We ran a uh, what was it? A the the Shadowy Elves, Dark Elves. No, 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 no. You did the Wrath and Glory. Yeah, for, no, 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 no. Oh, Wrath and Glory with the Dark Elves, but also yeah. for Soulbound, we did the ones from Warcry. What are the what are they called? The Knight Shadow Stalkers, and then they turned oh yes, yeah. Expansion. So it yeah, we, we keep predicting things. I think on this. So if we keep doing stuff, um, maybe maybe somebody will pick us up again. Um, 
other gaming interesting news obviously i should be running recording to go out soon uh the next episode of um vampire the masquerade fifth edition uh 24-hour party monsters. We've had a long hiatus off doing things. We're busy. New job starting at nice. my end. Um, and other cool gaming stuff I've picked up recently has been what? Um, just playing some Kingdom Death because the new card pack came through for 1.6 expansion. So oh, you, you've, you've been playing that? Um, none of the new stuff's turned up in the game yet, but it took oh, okay. <laughs> ages as always to re-sleeve cards and put stickers in books for the news. I, I've I've got it, but I've not done anything with it yet. I'm waiting yeah, till the new year. Um, James, you've been. I mean, obviously, you know, I know your your situation. It's not so easy to crack out Kingdom Death or or any gaming. But any interesting anything interesting in the computer um, video game computer games. I've I've been playing a little bit of Wildermyth recently, which I I suppose has a kind of thematic consistency with what we're talking about. It's um uh there's some it's it's a uh, a strategy game um a small team strategy game and you're in a kind of slightly mythy uh setting and there's weird weird creatures of of the forests and things and odd stuff happens but it's it does a lot of it algorithmically with uh storylines that get seeded and then follow up um uh, i quite often end up very quickly with people with frog heads and star hmm. hands and all kinds of weird odds and ends um but that's been uh, that's been quite a lot of fun cool um let's think what else is interesting release wise um nothing new out i can really think of oh, from vampire the masquerade there's a new scenario out called um i can't remember what it's called now but there's a new scenario out i think written by eddie webb um and uh that's for fifth edition there's i think hunter the visual second it really close to being on print on demand very close um nothing else particularly on the horror front though other than obviously we know that hunter um the reckoning for fifth edition rules that is coming um that'll be a form that take um uh, also out it's been out for a month or so now and has actually now hit silver um is um sin again which is the sec is vampire the requiem second edition Dava uh, clan book which is on um is on the storyteller vault which i co-wrote on so that's good to see that hit 100 more sales and of course more importantly um our uh scenarios for vampire the masquerade fifth and so uh ascension knight and um and make blood boil they've had because they pay what you want they've had together almost 600 downloads in the space of and a half which is really good obviously i'd rather if people would pay for them because it means then they get bronze and silver awards but it's nice that people are downloading because that's how they went out i think that's all the gaming news i can think of of particular from our end um is there anything matthew is there anything interesting from the free league and that maybe doesn't that doesn't fall under the the Vazen uh kickstarter well, well yeah today just just today uh, hours before there was an announcement from um uh the guys at oh damn it i've forgotten the name of the company nexus it's, it's the just nexus thank you very it? much uh yeah uh, the did, oh, what different. Uh, oh, just I, I posted it earlier somewhere else demi plane is demi play yeah uh, and Debbie Plane, who a few weeks ago announced Pathfinder Nexus, who got World of Darkness Nexus yeah. um, up and running, they're now um, uh, done a deal, uh, Free League, and have announced just today Nexus. It's quite the time with all these different um, virtual mm. tabletops, I will say, because obviously there is a virtual tabletop, mm. and then there is a 
Uh, what was that? There was Astral. There's uh, D, uh, what, Roll Twenty. Roll Twenty. Um, yeah, it's uh, and then there's is it which one is it? Tabletop Forge. Yeah. So um, the Foundry. Yeah. Um, foundry. Yeah. Sorry, Foundry. That's foundry. the one. And yeah, it's it's interesting to see how everyone's innovating this space. Sorry, I've done a lot of like web app design re- recently <laughs> from, from my day job, so I think I have a better feel for how to how stuff works in the background on these things, um, like the actual back end. Um, they're certainly they're certainly improving now. Like Roll Twenty is the go to one, but it's so laggy and and a little bit less than. The new stuff that is coming out, the virtual tabletop stuff that is coming out now, is so much better. So yeah, I mean, yeah. I think people have different needs. So Roll Twenty was designed by coders for. I always yeah. feel um, <laughs> oh, very much so. <laughs> um, one of my favourites is actually Roll R O L E, and that you know that puts the video and the voice front and um, and six character sheet on the side. It's like with some game gaming functionality. That's mm. my preferred method. But I know even within you know among our Discord, um, uh, Patreon, people have opened opinions. Foundry is very popular, and that's the one where Freely have put most of IP, um, but most of their investment in, in creating assets for their own. Uh, it'll be interesting to see whether Foundry gets as much attention if um, they've climbed into bed with, um, with the Nexus guys. And of course, you get all the Luddites like me that <clears throat> would much rather not have all the bells and whistles. And if you're playing online, Zoom works fine as far as I'm concerned. Then, yeah, I think I'm in a minority. There's something to be said about just stripping it all back, and it's just do you do you need to have all the all the tracking things? Do what you normally do, just trust your players. They've got their they've got their really need to be you know yeah, exactly. micromanaging, I, I guess, in a yeah, way. And I, and, I, and I think sometimes the, the the moving of the icons on the maps becomes the, the activity rather than actually yeah. role playing the game. Mm. It feels a bit yeah. artificial. You, you I, lose I, the kind I, of feel like if you start at the table and you have a map and you move the minis around there's 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 more to it and it's a lot more tactile and it's quicker to do yeah whereas on a on a computer screen it just feels a little stunted i find but this having, be, having this is a rabbit hole images. of a discussion though because this gets into like is pdf <laughs> even the 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 file format we shouldn't be yeah. using for role playing <laughs> in this day and age pdfs i don't you know we're a portable document format for printing it's there i think i think we you know we might see an evolution of things and then oh god we get into the metaverse and everything else and virtual stuff hey that um, that name is now that name is now uh, uh legalized yeah. you can't be metaverse <laughs> No, metaverse. No, metaverse is not legalized by fate. No one owns the term metaverse because it predates them doing stuff. You can call it what use it, no matter what. (laughs) That's like saying space space marine. marine. Yeah, Um, Stevenson invented metaverse in Snow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's uh, which, which is funny because Snow Crash is a warning, not an aspiration. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's actually most sci-fi. That reminds me, actually, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pipe my, I'm gonna, I'm gonna blow my own trumpet on this one because in a BBC article about the Matrix and about the resurgence in cyberpunk media, um, my the interview that um, that uh, Mike Pondsmith gave me for Cyber Magazine was cited, and um, for exactly the line that cyberpunk is not, you know, again, I mean, it's a common line, but cyberpunk is not uh, an aspiration, it's a warning, so. Um, it's quite nice to see that. The overlap of science and gaming, always fun. Um, and I'm sure I James has say, but people a seem lot... to need to keep being reminded about that. I, I think it's I, an I... interesting point of debate, though, actually, because I think when I used to play 2020 back in the day, and I ran a lot of it, 
Um, my players really seem to aspire to having cybernetic arms and cybernetic eyes and all the rest yeah. of it. <laughs> yeah, but that involves losing them in the first place. I know, way. but they did lose in a really that, horrific so way. <laughs> yeah. And a lot anyway. of money as well, of course. Yeah. Which and I'm we sure James, know that's not going to happen. James, yeah. you've mostly got some views on like the overlap between tabletop gaming and video games, given day job. You see oh. numerous attempts yeah. at things that blur the line. I mean, some of the tricky stuff beyond, you know, you already have a, a wall of information trying to get people into uh, role play games, like having having the digital supports like, yes, that kind of gives you some advantage there, but you've got to get them kind of trained up in that. There's the tutorializing. Uh, and then then you get to the point where some players don't understand stuff like, you know, I've I've played D&D games where I've helped people make their characters. And by the end of it, I've realized that actually one of my players had no idea what their character could do throughout the game because they were just like, I, I can do a thing, right? Tell me I can do a thing. And it's like, yes, I've got a copy of your character sheet. You can do the fireball by doing this. And like, OK, cool. I do one of them. Um, <laughs> you know, we I think you run the risk with some of these digital tools where you know, they they will see the things up at the top and they will go, yes, okay, cool. I think I do it's it. top things. Yeah. Especially with something like D&D Beyond, which if you have a mm. subscription to that, it suddenly gives you access to all of the books to a certain extent. Obviously, there's the paywall behind it all. But if you suddenly, like, you want to join in a group that's quite established and then you end up buying all these books, it's suddenly a massive overload that is instantly there for you, where that, to me, that always... Um, other than the actual system that I don't particularly like with D&D, but one of the things that really puts me off it is just the vast quantity of material that's out there that most people in groups say you need to play it. So you can't, you you, you meant to be able to just pick up the, the, the player's guide and make a character out of that and play it, but that's not what people do nowadays. And D&D and Beyond and things like that were meant to solve this issue where you had all access to everything and all that comes into it. But then for new players, it suddenly becomes an overwhelming, massive especially if they're up against a player who's experienced who then knows yeah. exactly what they want to do in order to get well, the character they want. But what There's we can a... do now nicely is we can bring this kind of nicely into, into free league stuff. Um, I was going to just say the problem with D&D is I think is because there's so much stuff is actually you yeah. have to have a GM that actually has knows everything. Has, has, uh, no, no, no. I don't think it knows everything. I was no. going to say as a G, as, you have to have a GM and group is actually satisfied to go. This is the limit of our garden. Yeah. All these other books can go away because that's what I learned from writing for I was fifth, you know, uh, for the based on 5e is that it while there are ways that the game can certainly be broken by writing a, a certain power, but that power works for the setting, the book you're writing. And so sometimes I think you can't be, you shouldn't use the fact that, that there exists 20 bloody books, yeah. which if you combine all the powers and you multi-classes and that, it's going to break the game. Forget that. Just You need a GM who's going to say no. You need you need mm. to have some um, quality, con- well, not quality, con- well, yeah, it's maybe it's a bit, bit of quality control, like, like, you know, just reducing what your options are. Anyway, anyway, let's talk about Vazen. Um, yeah, I was going to say, bring, bring this back into kind of free league stuff. It's like you can kind of remove a lot of that problem because character creation in most free league stuff is insanely simple. Um, so um, can, I, can, I, can I just do, do one, little, one little comment first? Um, yeah. Uh, the pronunciation is Versen. Versen, okay. Versen. Yeah. Imagine, yeah, V. Imagine it's spelled V A I R S. That's the way it should be pronounced. Sorry. Cool. I just, with a Swedish wife and you know, working with Free League, you know, I kind of get a bit pernickety on the points. So <laughs> apologies if I'm nitpicking, but no, um, that's fine. I mean, no. we there's always discussion about how how do you pronounce 
Zimache, is it Zimache? Is it Zamiche? Or, you know, <laughs> there's about 20 different ways that that can be pronounced any day of the week. So um, I've heard it pronounced cool. so many different ways as well. Um, so it's nice to have something kind of official, I suppose, because you obviously have those connections, Dave. My wife would still complain that my accent and getting it right is a million miles from where it should be. But um, <laughs> yeah, I do try at least. Um, I guess then I should, I think for to start off there, let's hand over to Dave and Matthew to pitch what is this game and, um, and what is the attraction to it to players? Like, where are they? What are they doing? And how, as they you know, the, the year zero rules and how that supports the type of stories that you can play in the basic stands. As the, um, as the, the, the best salesman in the team, Matt, did you want to, Go first, and then I'll. Uh, I was going to say that you should take the liberty, but um, but <laughs> we can come to that in a minute. So I think, to be honest, for both Dave and I, they're some both to pride. I mean, we buy everything from Free League anyway because we're Free League fans and we run a Free League podcast, so we back the Kickstarter. I'm, I'm going to hands up and say guilty as well on this. <laughs> I, I like I like the book. You know, I like the look of the book, and I remember having back the case sent on to get a copy of uh, uh, Edgar Grant's, um original sort of textbook that he wrote, and I love that too. And um, that's all great. But I kind of thought that it would sit on my floor pretty. We started playing it. Really good fun. Um, in a while, we'll talk about mechanics, and I have a theory of why it's good fun. But Dave, I. I want to go. I do want to turn over to you and to Magnus uh, in mm-hmm. an occasional campaign. It's not a thing we're playing regularly, but um, that really encourages role playing. And in fact, I was mm-hmm. talking on our Discord today. Um, come out right at the beginning of lockdown. So uh, one of the things Nils had asked me to do is create um, uh, adventure short scenario that could be run multiple times at. Um, uh, uh, conventions when they're doing that. So I created a two-hour-long scenario, and I like to think of myself for being able to be really dating shorts. It's really hard to finish that thing two hours because everybody keeps bloody role playing, uh, <laughs> and it seems to encourage getting into character more than almost any other game that I've played. So, Dave, I'm a GM. You tell me why you just get into character. Well, I think if I take take a tiny step back, so I think just to explain the, the 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 broad premise of the game so it's it's set in the 19th century it's not set in any particular part of the 19th century so it's just the 19th century and you can as a gm you can really take any aspect of of that period of history and, and play it into your game without being too sort of pedantic about the actual history and it, it's set in scandinavia in the core book and it's all about uh sort of nordic supernatural folklore and uh, things that go bump in the night. And your characters in the game are uh, members of what's called the Society. And the Society is a group of people who have the sight. And those people, uh, the rare people, are able to see Verson. And most normal people can't see the Verson unless they reveal themselves. And your role is to investigate things uh, you know, that go bump in the night. Um, Verson kind of mysteries. And one of the... One of the, I mean, the first thing that really draws you to the book, and I've said this to a few people, every time I pick up this book and look at it, even if we're not playing, 
I just fall in love with the game that tiny little bit more. The artwork, as you've already said, Johan Ergerkrantz's artwork is absolutely spectacular. The 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 style is slightly cartoony. It's not really cartoony, slightly, but still in every image you get a sense of dread or a sense of of uh, of threat or of mystery. And there's so much of Free League's work is uh, you know well, all of it is 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 supported by fabulous artwork. And a number of Free League games over the years I've been drawn to and nothing more than the artwork. I thought, that's cool. I need to have a look at that. Um, so that's the basic premise. The, the other themes that the game is talking about are things like the change in, in the world as the 19th century in industrialization is spreading humans' influence throughout the world um, and throughout the Nordic, uh, the North. Versen are being forgotten or they're being downtrodden, or they're being displaced. And the Versen don't like that. And a lot of the stories are, are, are very nuanced in that the immediate problem might be that people in a certain village are dying or bad things are happening to them. But actually the root of that problem might be that a Versen has been mistreated and actually the, the cause turns out to be the humans themselves. And it has that real sense about it. Um, Magnuson, the character that I play in um, in Matthew's campaign, is a butler to one of the other one of the other players. His his tagline is um, "If I may take the liberty," uh, whenever he wants to do something. And I've based that character uh, on uh, on a, on a character played by Victor Garber in season eight of Frasier. He plays a butler to Frasier called Ferguson, and his tagline in that is "If I may take the liberty." So I based him on that. And there's something about the book, I'd, I'd be interested to hear Matt's theory about the mechanics, but I often say there's something about the book, almost from between the lines of the text, it encourages role-playing. And it, it just, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, I've, I've thought about this quite a bit, and it's really difficult to put my finger on what actual bit in it makes me, or makes other players, um, it brings out the best in them, I think, in role-playing. So I'd, so I'd be interested to hear Matt's, Matt's theory. Yeah, um, just on top of that, what I was just, as you were saying that, what I've kind of come to realise for me, which is one of the reasons why I love it, I'm a massive folklore nerd. It's it's mm. one of my great passions. I have another podcast where I talk about folklore and tell folklore t- tales just mm. by myself. But as you're saying that, the thing that kind of I think that draws me in each time that I look at it is it gives me that sense of wonder that I had as a kid when I was reading those folklore tales. It really has that feeling of being part of those tales again that I got when I was a kid. So each time I go in there, I read the story and I see something different behind the tale, behind the troll or behind the mare that's in there. And I see a new take on these things and I see a new way to kind of view them and then maybe bring them into a game. Mm. And it gives me that kind of sense of wonder. And I think for me, that's kind of why it really pulls out that role-playing thing because it allows you then to kind of tell those stories you knew as a kid in a slightly way, in the way that you viewed it through the way that the book has told you. Yeah, and there's definitely a, a, a nostalgic element to the game. So in, in terms of the version that you'll come across, some of them listed in the book are going to be completely and utterly familiar to everybody. Things like mermaids, things like werewolves. Um, yeah. But the book gives you a little sense of what the Nordic Scandinavian law behind that is, and that each description will give you a few little lines that are each, you know, in each one of them is a plot hook or, a, or an idea mm. for a scenario. Mm. It's it's beautifully done. It's wonderfully written. But then you get those versions that are squarely from Scandinavian folklore 
that probably have got parallels around the world, but they're just not necessarily parallels that are immediately apparent. And uh, some of those, again, are, are uh, yeah, they're, they're just, some of them are mischievous. Some of them are, are trying to right wrongs that have happened to them or, or to others. Some of them are quite vengeful. Um, but I think it's definitely got that real nostalgic feel that you were kind of referring to there, Dave. Yeah, yes, it's very much. Um, what I'm really surprised about is it's it, it's for me it was an instant hit for me when I saw this game because it's something that I love personally. But when it was released, it was the, the first Kickstarter did it did well, but it didn't do as well as some of their other Kickstarters. So it's kind of been on a slow burn. But recently, it's just suddenly blown up, and as we've seen mm. with the current Kickstarter for Mythic. Britain and Ireland, and that the other book that's coming with it was it Winter Seasons of Mystery. Seasons of Mystery. Yeah, it's not half a million dollars. It blew through all the Kickstart, all the stretch goals in the first day. So something has caught the imagination of people within it. So um, I think there's something there that there's, there are some free league games now. And now Matt and I are um, freelancers for Free League. We're not official Free League members, mm. so we you know we can't speak for them. But obviously, we we have quite a lot of involvement with them. There was one thing a couple of years ago that I, I still feel slightly bad about, and that was the fact that games like Things from the Flood and games like, it seemed anyway at the time, Verson, were being overshadowed by the bigger titles that were mm. sweeping, you know, sweeping the community, you know, like Alien, for example, and all the Alien productions, uh, um, and, and um, Things from the Flood as well did, did so well. And I felt, I felt a bit sad that Verson wasn't going to get its day in the sunshine. Now, great yeah. that, that that is turning around. I still feel a little bit bad for things from the flood in that light, but you never know. Maybe that will get a, get its day in the sunshine as well. I really hope so, because things from the flood is the is the game that pulled me into Free League. Um, mm. but it seems to have kind of disappeared somewhat, even now. Um, if it's anyone's completely overshadowed by the success, I think, which is, which is really, yeah. which is really yeah. sad, because it's, it's such a good game. And it's it's now they've got the the they've got the obviously we've got aliens with them, which is an absolutely phenomenal game. Next year they're bringing out Blade Runner, which I think will overshadow yeah. everything again. They're getting these big names, and uh, the One Ring they've just released the second edition of that, which is going to blow people around. They've got Twilight Two Thousand. They've got all these big yeah. classic games coming to them. So, but yeah, um, Veston. It's, it's nice to see it now, kind of getting the the, the light that I mm. personally feel it deserved because I. I'm obsessed with the game slightly. <laughs> um, I say I've, I've been absolutely loving playing Magnuson, and there was there was a there's a wonderful moment where um, Emily, who plays my plays my mistress, um, one of the characters was being entranced by a verse and was going to walk to her death, and so I I pulled my gun to shoot her, um, to try and nick her to break her out of the stu- out of the um, mm. out of the trance, and Emily was going, "You don't have the liberty! You don't have the liberty!" Yeah. It just brings out those really interpersonal moments. You don't I, need to roll any dice. I've, I've played games of Vesson where no dice have been rolled. Yeah. I, I think maybe that brings me on to, yeah, I was, I've yeah. just had a thought and I was going to, rather than just say it, I was going to defer to Matt to uh, yeah. say his, his thought on, so on why. I'm going to talk about the whole of the year zero um, to explain where I think Vesson sits. Obviously, it started from Mutant Year Zero, which is quite a complex game. There's a lot of moving parts to that. Um, and by comparison, we were just talking about Things in the Flood and um, Tales from the Loop. That's really stripped back and quite simple. It's player facing the GM, doesn't need dice. 
essence, it's between the two of those and more towards the Tailspin. So actually, it's really mm. quite simple mechanics. It isn't so player-facing. The GM does roll dice in Versen. But um, one of the important things that differenti- it differentiates every single game is the method of pushing the dice. Now, with both Tales from the Loop and with Versen and with um, the dice, a limited number of every time you price, which is to roll again, because the odds of success aren't actually huge on, mm. on the dice pool uh, normally. So you often need to roll your dice again, and that comes at a cost. The cost in all these three games that I've mentioned is a condition of some sort. You tick a box, you draw dice from your dice pool in future rolls, and re-roll the dice you've currently done again um, to see if you can succeed this time. Now, with the loop and with things, that tends towards failure, and I think that's on purpose. You don't get to roll very many dice in those games compared to some other ones like Coriolis or Alien or, or, or um, Mutant Year Zero. You get relatively few dice to roll, and you get your limited conditions send you home crying to mum in Tales from the Loop kill you in things from the flood they definitely may kill you again in inversion but strictly speaking i think players are actively discouraged from rolling dice unless they really need to make that yeah two things one is as dave said you know he or or, as you both said in a way you 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 can have a whole session without rolling any dice and i think there's uh, uh, an overt and a subvert psychological impact. You're not necessarily wanting to roll dice because you know the chances get, uh, chances of failure are quite high and the chance of success will be low. Um, but also, because you're nervous about those dice, you kind of save, save them towards the end where, where you can tick off and, and hope you can um, succeed. So try and find out most of the... All versions stories are effectively detectives of a sort. So you try and do that through interpersonal interactions and try not to necessarily have to roll the dice and definitely not to push the dice in those early stages. So, yeah, I, think, I was just going to say, as a quick open... Quite, that sounds quite um, like, uh, I would say, I mean, in, in conceptually, I think puts it into the same realm as, say, a Trail of Cthulhu. So the gunshots, again, there, you, you only really ever roll dice where there is the risk of danger and any other investigation you don't really roll dice you check box the guns designed to allow you to push mm. to do investigation because obviously who the hell wants to roll did you spot the clue uh, when the clue is the thing that's going to push on story that's that's yeah. not you know the fun is you find the the required clues because we all the characters are investigating level or else they would story they've got eyeballs basically yeah and then the question is, what quality of clues to find? That's where you might roll or you spend, you spend your, your bennies to find clues. Extra. And the question then is how the players, through role-playing as, and as people, put those clues together to then take the, the danger situation where either they know what they're doing or they have no clue, and that's when the dice matter, and that's when the danger occurs. Yeah. So I think it, it, it feels like that. What, for sure. Yeah. I say, on the game that I played uh, a couple of days ago, where I did this very, very quick winter-themed story in Iceland, we had an occultist and a writer. Now, the occultist has a crystal ball, and the writer has an ability called automatic writing. So I use these as the way to kind of forward the story rather than going, I want to go and search this person's house and find out what took the child. It's like, well, you've got a skill called automatic writing. Why not do that? 
and sit down and see if you can connect to things rather than walking around the room and go, oh, look, there's big claw marks in the wall. You then get to do this really cool role play where the character suddenly sits down and then they lose control of their hand and they go out and then they look down and they see the the results of, of the connection with whatever it is they're trying to connect to as they do the automatic writing. And so you kind of then get this connection of the, I suppose, the spookier side of, of Vaius and, and, and kind of what these people are going through and how they then are investigating it, but in a different way to what you would usually do in a They're actually mm-hmm. investigating it in that kind of, Spooky way. And uh, when I used the crystal ball in that game, the, um, it messed up the player for the rest of the game. They couldn't roll a single thing afterwards. But um, they, they played it really, really well. The fact that they just saw everything and they go, oh my God, this thing's eating children. What? Um, spoiler alert if you ever watch that game. <laughs> I think there's definitely a thing about the, the stories taking you into what is ostensibly a normal environment. Then just something is slightly off. Mm. And it's, it's about the, the player's Asking the right questions and having the right conversations rather than rolling the right dice. Yeah. And the, the key thing for me, I think, trying to sum up what Matthew was saying, is that the mechanics just get out of the way. Mechanics are very yeah. simple and are very straightforward. They're nicely done so that things like your items or your, your talents are, are, are written in a way that just invokes how you might use them. And um, yeah, you, don't, you don't end up rolling dice until... You are really coming to that critical moment when when something is the real challenge to face. But you're yeah. given every opportunity to find those clues and then piece those clues together. And how you do that might be might be very different. Um, in in one of the scenarios we had, um, we were invited to dinner with well, the local the local dignitaries of the local town we were investigating. Now, obviously, Magnuson couldn't sit down next to lady inga and have dinner with her so i went off and carried on serving the meal and then working in the kitchens was able to investigate and do some do some you know, interrogation of the staff in there whilst everybody else had their lovely ornate dinner and had a conversation then it worked really nicely we found different things out through those different conversations and then when the characters came back together again we were able to piece together a, a, a reasonably significant part of the story works works beautifully it's, it's very much a storytelling system mm. um it is it's Unlike Tales from the Flood and Things from the Loop, which don't really have combat, they have social combat in a way. Verson was the first, other than, not well, for me it was the first free league game that brought in the, the combat system to me. It's like, I'd, I'd not played Coriolis before. I had Mutant Year Zero. I have, I've got the books, but I've never played them. But Verson was the first game that really brought in the, the ability to punch something. Um, it's it's when you then go down that and go, yes, yes, I can do this. But then you realize after you've done it a few times, like, well, that's not actually a person. That's a person. I can't mm. hurt it. Therefore, I need to actually know stuff. And then you realize. Find another oh, way around the problem. Yeah. You've got to yeah. think with it. You've got to role play the game because the combat stops you from winning the game. You're like, and, and the combat is something. Sorry, I just said the combat is something that you really don't want to do. Because no. you're likely to to end up very badly as a result of mm. it. I always kind of liken it to kind of combat that you would see in an old 1940s Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes movie, where <laughs> it's yeah. running along in the dark and firing a couple of shots and shouting "Stop thief" or whatever. Um, and that's kind of it. And the game is set up for combat to be a very small part of it. Unlike games like yeah. Alien, Mutant Year Zero, again to another example where combat is a much more important part of your experience in that game as a character. Chris or James, do you have any insights from what you've heard? Go on, James. Oh, 
Um, I mean, it's it's fascinating mm. stuff, really. Like, um, uh, I the one game of um, Hilt in the Loop I played, uh, our storyteller was very intense on rolling, uh, getting us to roll checks, and it's it's all just been flooding over me that like, yes, that's probably why we we struggled quite so much. Like, everything was a check, and then by the end of it, we, yeah. uh, you know, we we got nowhere because it's quite difficult to win those um those things. But I I love a system where where you can you can actually play and you're encouraged to do so. I mean, my D and D group basically are of a similar point where they don't, you know, they they engage much more with the role play side of it, and we we sell them role things. And it's why why freely games, oh, these these are uh, these ones always appeal to me. Um, yeah, I've I've <laughs> been uh, I've been looking through the rule book and I'm already marking stuff up, and I'm like, oh, uh-huh. okay, <laughs> it, it's group. interesting because because every freely game that the freely intent. Pretty much every game they put out is to roll the dice as little as you possibly need. You know, as little You've as read you read Twilight Two Thousand, haven't you? Well, with I said most games. Um, <laughs> I think, but I think in Twilight Two Thousand has a certain heritage that it has to respect. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Say, you have to roll, roll, have to roll dice every five minutes. Yeah. It's like I saying mean, Warhammer Fantasy roleplay is not a percentile system, and you see how people reacted to that. Um, hmm. You know, there's, but, there's an element of respect about heritage. heritage. I think some games, it's it. Are more forgiving for more dice yeah. rolling. So Twilight 2000, yeah, let's put that to one side. It's a different beast. But Alien, for example, and Mutant Year Zero, you should still roll the dice as 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 little as possible. But the push mechanic is more forgiving. It mm. encourages more dice rolling. You might need to roll more dice if you're coming up against bad things or you wanted to hide from bad things uh, more frequently. Yes, but the more dice you roll in, in in Alien, the more likely you are to run out of ammo, and then then things go wrong. Yeah, exactly. So there's always there's always penalties for rolling too yeah. much and i think that that's the trick for a gm particularly if you're new to a free league game it's getting the sense that you don't need to roll for every single uh you know thing that your player wants to do that you might do in another system and that's fine that's okay i've i found um that when i want to introduce people to rpgs who are they're a little bit standoffish with it because they see D, they see they need different dice and they need to think about maths and it's a combat system and all this kind of stuff and I'm going, well, i go i turn around and go no I will give you a game that I can run just for you as one person, and I've I've done it for Vesson um, quite well. I've run run it a couple of times for just one person, um, and said I can do this entire thing without you touching a single dice. Mm. And they have so much fun with it. Um, the two games that are on my my streams, um, I have introduced three new players, three folklorists who are actually folklorists into RPGs, and they've gone. That was great fun. We've played D and D, and we didn't enjoy it. But this is kind of what we wanted. We wanted to be able to tell stories. Mm. So if people are getting into RPGs to tell stories, I find that freely, if if you're a good GM and you understand kind of how it works, they're really good at introducing people into them. If people want to get into RPGs and do the the the, the dungeon crawl traditional OSR stuff, dungeon crawl and fight the big dragon at the end of it, then go down the D and D route. But it's it's kind of knowing the audience that you're playing to. And I think Free League works quite well for those people who want to tell the story. It's interesting you say OSR, because I mean, I was just reading, um, was it Dark Grim? Because I mm. backed that and this kind of synthwave, almost Cronenberg-esque sci-fi horror um, where everyone's like <laughs> luminous amazing goop or something. But that's also, you know, you look at that, you look at uh, Mortborg, and they're all rules light, but those two count as OSR. So I think mm. 
I think what you're actually getting at, I think, I think it's it's something to do with how much of the game your interactions are represented as granular mechanics. Yeah, because. I think this is somewhere between, like, if you pick up, like, classic pickup, you know, the basic intros that got me role by game. Like, the red box. The, well, there's sweet F all rules in there, other than it does combat, and then it does a few other bits, and that's it. And then the rest is you to role play around. And I think that's. I think that's where it is. Is like some games do have a system almost for everything, and that can be at its detriment. Again, mm. I think that's where I and it's about that granularity, and I mean that turns up in my conversations about why Wrath and Glory is great compared to the percentiles. Um, because looking, because I think the other thing is looking at uh, at Versum as a as a game, it, it's not very dense in its in its pages, as in it's not assaulting no, you with a wall not. of text, which is. I'll be honest, quite lovely because uh, I only properly read the D&D rule books in writing for Iron Kingdoms and I was shocked at how much text is on a page. I'm just like, really? Is there a need for all this? It's horrendous. To the game. Whereas if you go at it from, you know, from the D&D beyond, it's much easier to understand, which I think just says something about if you reach a certain age and you've got much more things to do, you don't have time to rule uh, to read text, which is actually not very to the. Um, so it's, like, it's this obsession with filling those most most rules are what three hundred forty yeah. pages long. You've got to fill this that white space, man. Yeah, You've got to fill that white space and, and validate your book costing yeah. however much. And but you look at you look at all of the free league games from alien to coriolis to Simbaroom. the books they're not dense but they they portray the ideas and they give you everything that you need to do in like 250 odd pages and less um, walls of text matthew and i have to thank free league for being or feeling at least that alien was too dense because otherwise they wouldn't have asked us to do hopes last day the core <laughs> book, because they thought Chariot of the Gods was too long, which was supposed to be the core book scenario. Really? Out, oh, yeah, no, Chariot of the Gods. They, I they think put that, that out into over, a separate scenario. Yeah, that would have been an overkill for the book. And we'd so, hope to stay. The one thing I wanted to bring up, which I think is maybe different about uh, Versum as a, as a in the Year Zero games, is that there's there's the focus on the actual um, society and mm -hmm. building up the castle, building up the the resources, the location, the contacts. That to me seemed more unique to this game than the other ones. I suggest it was it's one of the most original ideas. It's quite a lot similar to the arc in um, Mutant Year Zero. Zero. Yeah, yeah. You, ha you have a, you had the arc concept and you build up the arc um, and the arc itself in Mutant forms community and you can run uh, bottle games just within your arc. So it's it's a it's another level of it. But this is definitely a, a, a kind of evolution of that concept. Mm. Yeah. The other game that's got this kind of thing in it, again, obviously, is uh, Forbidden Lands. You've got your stronghold yes. concept, which, again, is similar but different. I think, I think Matthew, you, you tell me what you think because you're the GM, but I think the, the, the approach in Versen is subtler and easier and more effective for a game in terms of building up your castle or your stronghold, whatever you want to call it, than, yeah, now, than the Forbidden Lands approach. Yeah, so I think Forbidden Lands uh, uses a money sink. Um, <laughs> if you ever have any money, yeah. <laughs> which we don't. I think there were probably two creatives, uh, two creative minds behind it. Said, "Oh God, the problem with you is everybody gets millions of gold pieces and don't know what to do with it." Uh, and one of them went, "So I'm going to have a uh, have the stronghold as a money sink," and the other one said, "I'm just going to make their less treasure." Uh, 
Um, so, uh, Dave, Dave really wants a stronghold, and the one time they tried to run the that's by the by. We've got no way of making enough money to run a stronghold. We couldn't even pay a guard for one week. That was how poor we were. Um, but in... Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a different version of Warhammer Fantasy, where everything is grim yeah, dark right. and you have no money. Uh, but you really want that castle. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but, but coming back to the topic, Verson, to be fair... Dave, I don't think I have let you play with it enough. Because we've we've done most of these adventures as sort of showcase streaming adventures rather than your campaign. You know, that's the sort of thing that gets missed off the beginning and end of the adventure. So that show the people watching it on YouTube or Twitch the um the core of the adventure. But we're still doing a little bit. Yeah. What well, like and, and in the in the um just Sorry, can I just talk about the castle a bit with investing because we want to keep it with investing just so people are aware of it. If you read when you get into the book, you realize that the reason why we're talking about building up the castle is the society has fallen and that mm-hmm. you as players are being brought back into it by the last members who effectively dissolved the society a couple of decades ago and you are now being brought back in so there's a camp mini campaign in the back of the book like there are in most free league books that is kind of bringing you bringing you in to try and uh find out these this new mystery and why the castle has fallen then you've got to recreate the society so that's kind of why we're talking about this and where it kind of fits in i just thought i'd add that in there so people are aware of what we're talking about when we say building a castle and what we mean by that yeah, and so the castle exists um, in a dilapidated state. You're not, yes. you, you're not there building a fort in the 17th century. You've taken over a dilapidated And what you're doing, effectively, is by an old lady in the dusty old rooms and realising it has more or adding more function to it. Like, you know, photography is a new thing in the 19th century. Let's, you know, let's create a photography here in the castle and do things like that. Um, yeah. And in fact, I guess the way that... Uh, Dave, we've done most of that sort of castle building has actually been in our patron Thomas's uh, Japanese version campaign. Yeah, absolutely. I was, gonna, I was just I was going to mention that that yeah. So Thomas Bolton, who's one of our patrons, uh, has done a, a, a version of version set in the the Meiji period in Japan, and we played it. Get a hold of them. it's on drive through. I think I know, I know it is, and I keep looking at it and go, <laughs> I don't really need to, but I don't need any more ideas thrown at me to <laughs> writing projects. It's, it's really nicely done, Thomas uh, and his. Um, uh, his collaborators have done a fabulous job and really enjoyed playing it and it really evoked the setting of a bit of period of history that i know very little about um, but in that yes we did manage we had a our our was it actually a castle or was it just like an old mansion house it was it, it was a castle then a japanese yeah. castle so. yeah yeah but we then we then built a, a strong room as our first um uh, feature because we had you know, recovered some items that had Verson trapped within them, and we didn't want to just leave them lying around in the living room. So uh, it was... Uh... It's like the Ghostbusters ghost vault, isn't it, in a way? <laughs> yeah. Did, um, did, yeah. You, did you deck it out like the old school ninja movies where you'd have creaking wall, uh, floorboards and things? So... <laughs> well, my well, we, I think we were busy sorting out the library. So, uh... <laughs> that was that was the other thing. The, sort of our first upgrade was was the fact that you were a librarian as well. Yeah. But yeah, so so the castle, more than in Forbidden Lands, is the very core. You know, it's yes. where you start all your adventures, and it's important to recognise. I think the game's sort of literary underpinnings in that every adventure starts effectively with a letter or an invitation of some sort. Mm-hmm. That is effectively delivered to the castle, and you're all sitting at the castle reading about this mystery in some far-flung part of the mythic. 
planning for the journey there and particularly of course if you do have a cover with the library maybe doing some research in the library piecing yeah. together the clues in that letter about what the vessel might be that you're going to investigate so there's a very sort of rigid structure to the adventures um or in all the publishers uh, where you kind of do get get the invitation do your castle research maybe go and buy a piece of equipment travel and then arrive at the uh, you know the location and do the role-playing bit um and uh, this is the bit i mean you know, because we're streaming a lot of these we are, i often cut short all of that and you know, plonk you the adventure for our um, for our and, and yeah, I, I found you can spend too. hours you, you can spend hours doing that that journey from one place to another as they exactly. just sat on a train having a conversation going oh look at the mountains oh look at the weather <laughs> yeah. you're like three yeah, hours later you spent three hours talking about the weather stop it please <laughs> you're, you're surprised how much people want to see the the, the settlement section like when i did yeah. kingdom death with uh on tabletop and we, we cut out on the first one for the first few videos we didn't show the settlement section we just cut straight to the hunt and the showdown and people were like oh but we want to see what you what you built like how you expanded the settlement and what you and what you made and we're like really you want to see you want to see us people want to see the world over, yeah, over bits but apparently that's interesting so it's yeah. it's interesting when people get their kicks yeah. um, people want to like with what i found with something like vesson and i've done it with some other games is they want to if you give them the opportunity people want to be able to have that ability to create the world as they're going along mm -hmm. so it's like well i've created the library and the books and things you're going to find there and i've told you you're going to do a journey and then i've created everything else afterwards you go well there's this bit in the middle which i've got nothing for you lot do it and they yeah. love a lot of players will love that the ability to just sit there talk to the other players have a conversation like they're having a cup of coffee on a train and just watching the world go by people mm -hmm. weird the mundanity of it weirdly a tracks a certain people i think well i'm not just certain but i mean i think everybody who's in and really likes that yeah. sort of stuff and we saw Nord nordic horror is it's that banality of nothing happening and then there's a massive weird scary ass creature at the end of it and you win and it's like oh yeah. well you well you don't win you either die horribly or someone else dies horribly and it all goes away come to so... an arrangement i think is probably the best way of talking about it yes. you hardly ever win of... Conscious time, then. Um, yeah. So the new Kickstarter, as we said, um, obviously more artwork that as you expect from uh, from your hand, and we also have um, essentially as writing, you know, writing and design for the other Graham Dave has written, um, hmm. including so Vampire Vampire the Masquerade back in the day, and I've said I need to chat to him about that. Um, and He's very busy at the moment, apparently. He is incredibly busy with... Oh, right, so we're your busy. second best guest, so you couldn't get away from <laughs> I, I think well, I could we, possibly... we knew that, though, surely. I, yeah. I will nail down Graham at some point. Um, um, but... I, I will say, I, I asked you guys first, and then Dave, <laughs> Dave said yes, and then I went, hang on a minute, Graham's written this, I should probably get Graham as well, and he just said no. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> No, he, uh, they they basically I can tr I can tell you now the rookery put out a stream almost every and he's on a lot of and that's mm. as well as writing stuff for me. So and and plus and whatever else has been hired for he is busy. Um, mm. um, so what what are we expecting from this Kickstarter then? Like, funny what, enough, what I wanted to ask Dave a question about this. Um, so Dave and I have both worked or now actually both the book. Um, just to follow on from our discussion of the castle. In the mythic north our castle is set in um in Uppsala, uh i believe but i can't remember dave castle is in london or the, rather the home base of society if you want to have any home base or the rose isn't it yes. it's, yeah that's it's in right. london but yeah. where is it 
I think Dave just said. I can't remember exactly where it is. It's called the Rose House, and yeah. it is. I think it's kind of on the the richer outskirts of what is a nineteenth century London. So it's probably basically city centre London nowadays. But mm. yeah, I don't um, remember the exact. I, I don't know too much yeah. about it. Obviously, I, I've not seen the rules of it. All I know is what's on the Kickstarter. As much <laughs> yeah. as I've tried to get a a, a a sneak peek at it, I've not managed to. <laughs> We had a sneak peek some time ago, um, and um, I think you should be the first one. You should be the one that starts, because I looked at the adventures, which are kind of the, the second half of it, and you looked at the first half of it. So, um, do you want to go first? Yeah, so, um, so yeah, they asked, they asked Matthew and me to, uh, to give, the, give, the, give the text a good once over. Um, Matthew, we, we decided Matthew would look at the scenarios and I would look at the rest. Um, what does it give us? I mean, it gives a lot of background, as you would expect of um britain at the time it tries to pull out um again the not not being too prescriptive over what part of the 19th century you're talking about so there's quite a lot of developments throughout the 19th century if you want to play any of them in don't be too pedantic about the the actual specific year you're trying to run your game in it's not that kind of not that kind of a game uh, it looks at obviously all the countries of Britain and Ireland. So it uh, uh, there's obviously a, the sort of southeast London focus. There's a lot going on in London. There, that's where the society is based in it. But uh, the rest of, uh, of of Britain and Ireland gets a really thorough treatment as well. There are a lot of scenario hooks and ideas. So there's quite a lot of um, uh, uh, sort of vignettes about certain things across the whole country which are trying to give you a um as a gm a small bit of text and a nice bit of law that that you know that is that is traditional real folklore from britain and ireland you can then take and do with what you please um as part of that i i was able to suggest about 15 or so um additional locations to try and really plump out the 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 number of places and locations and folklore um aspects that uh that were included in the book and i think those have been included and um got to review the rest of it and offered a few comments with, with quite a lot of free league stuff they 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 use me um and this is quite a lot of what they do with me for alien as well to kind of look at it from a player's point of view and make sure that what's being produced is is going to land well at the table and then usually i'm i'm lucky enough to be able to offer some suggestions which more often than not that they 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 accept and we write those in so you've got a broad span you've got um nothing is set in stone there is no i think one of the things that we all recognize about folklore is same story changes depending on where you come from or where you hear it or there'll be regional variations so it's so it's not so. yeah so it, so. it's not trying to be too prescriptive about exactly what the story is or what the reason behind occurrence might be it uh, it gives you the occurrence or it gives you the the basic bit of law and then it allows you to to draw inferences for yourself as a gm and hopefully gives you plenty of avenues to take each line um in the in the way that you wish to take it and the way that you wish to develop it for your for your particular uh, your particular game and your players at the table it's one of the things that that the folklore is is if if you read a a story about an English giant, a giant from England, it's going to be a very, very different tale to the stories that you'll hear. If So if you read the story of Gog Magog um, from Cornwall compared to, um, weirdly, there's a there's a mound in Cambridge, Cambridgeshire, called Gog Magog Mound. And the, the relationship between those two is very, very different, even though they're named after the same giant. Yeah. 
then you've got other giants around the UK who are not big ass mean people who who do horrible things. And but then there's an Irish giant who eats his children off a cliff. Um, so there's there's different ways of, of of folklore creatures appearing, and it doesn't necessarily. One of the things I th- I, I love about what the the core book has done is it's given you the overarching idea. It's not giving you a specific way of things, how they should play. Exactly. Yeah. And I really, I'm looking forward to seeing how they, how they do mythic Britain and bring in a lot of the stories like the Selkies and the Kelpies, the Boggarts, which we know are coming up. So we know Kel, we know Selkies and Boggarts are going to be in there because they've, they've hit their Kickstarters. Yeah. And I'm really interested to see this because I know what the ideas of these represent and I know specific stories related to them. So I'm really interested to see how they've put these into a format that can be used across a game because i know how i would do it and mm. i've run a game with a selkie um and i suspect that you'll find that even if work. even if the representation in the book isn't exactly what you would think is your kind of selkie there'll be plenty there for you to be able to just yes. do slightly and bring it to to the place you want it to be as a gm so i think it should be really easy to use in in that respect i think that's that's one of the things that i found with it so it is just instantly it's like I recognize these creatures and then I know stories and I can relate them across like this. I don't recognize anything as anything in folklore because everything is mutable in folklore. Um, so the other, the other interesting focus. about this book as well is, is, um, is because I think really as a nation that's been invaded and settled by news over a long time mm-hmm. is the different kind of like the, the way that, different folks kind of juxtapose against each other then yeah. and how they amalgamate that's always quite like if you if you take the if you take the got... actual story of where albion um comes from uh, we're actually uh the giants are weird ass descendants of uh persian people persian women having sex with something uh and, and then the greeks come over and beat up the giants and so we're technically greek if you take that traditional idea and folklore stories of of uh, Albion and stuff, so there's a lot of weird stuff within British folklore. Um, and I think that a book like this can only only hope to do a fraction of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I suspect there'll be people who will be looking for their favourite bit of folklore and will be be disappointed that they don't find. There's no dragons in yet. It's all we have um, played out. No dragons in the whole <laughs> season. <laughs> no spoilers, Matthew. <laughs> Um, um, yeah, so one of the things that um, that Freely actually released today on, on Facebook is a map that um, is now in its finished state. Uh, Dave and I saw it last um, and had to make quite a few corrections to it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, mostly, that... mostly quite minor, but there were a few. Well, there is a dragon on that. They had London up where Manchester was, didn't they? That was that was <laughs> no, no, nothing quite that bad. No, it was more about, shall we say, uh, our colonials uh, to the other, the, the English colonial intention. Oh, the other three countries in the Union, a little uh, bit, yeah, uh, interestingly represented. So, uh, so we've, I think, hopefully, helped them with that. We've done some spelling errors. We've, uh, I've made sure there's a black shock in East Anglia as well which that little illustration I, I'm, I'm glad that you've you, you've you've put black shook in east anglia and not just put him across the entirety of the uk <laughs> well he's, he's a little bit suffolk from the norfolk but then he really really depends like there's if you if you go to so um so the scenario that he I warned i know mark norman of the folklore podcast who is basically the black dog god so be okay. careful where we go. Yeah, no, it. I was going to say that the because obviously the scenario I wrote for um, Chronicles of Darkness on the Storyteller Vault is based on my hometown in Hereford. We have uh, that's where 
we have the legend of Black Vaughn who appears as a black dog, mm. dog, or at least he has a ghost. He appears as a ghost of a bull and a fly as well, amongst other things, terrorizing the town. And that is the source myth for Hound of the Baskervilles down the road from where I live is Baskerville Manor. So, mm. you know, the black dog myth is, you know, is it's a uk wide myth it's ubiquitous yeah, yeah. there's there's a myth almost everywhere i guess isn't there yeah there, there is literally a myth in almost every single region and town of the mm. uk of a black dog but the mm. the name shook is specifically an east anglian name oh yeah when, sure, I, I, just... when, when I hear when i hear people say that there's a black shook at manchester cathedral i'm like no there's a black dog at manchester cathedral but you have to but that's mostly also if you think about it given that the way that people have moved around from yeah, the countryside yeah, yeah. into the cities as part of of um industrialization that terminology at a point you know homogenizing yeah. around which is so, a really cool thing that you can actually you bring shouldn't in use that against well, someone to say there's a black shook that's like no. that's their reference or where they've heard it from is likely yeah. the way that a town or city has been has grown up has grown and been populated over time, which is actually then quite within the within the context of 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 this Kickstarter. Is interesting. Also, again, we're looking at the 19th century. We're looking at industrialization. Yep. We're looking at people coming from uh, one area of the country to another to find work. Um, that is going to have the mixing of legend and folklore from what parts of Britain that actually, in some respect, quite distinct, especially from Cornwall and Somerset. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or your weird place so this is a and theme of the book actually just as in so in, in in the mythic north there is a an underlying meta theme of industrialization and old rural is changing obviously cutting down in an island as well but i think particularly in, in this book and in the adventures portrayed a lot of it is about the movement the movement of people uh, mm. to the uh, in, into the cities and things like that, but mm. also, of course, the medicine. So that will be, I think, an added part of this theme, if you like, over uh, what we see in, in the one, Mythic North books. One mm. question I do have about, um, and I don't know how much you can say about this. I know you've obviously seen a lot more of it than we have. Um, in in the core Vesson, Vesson book, we ha- we see the rebuilding of the society because the society has obviously taken this step back and with the industrialization and stuff. But what we see in what we're seeing in the new um, Kickstarter is we have the Rose House and the British Society. My my kind of what I'm really interested to see is how this connects to the core the the original society in the core book because. The, the Nordic society that you present in the core book is very much a, a dilapidated thing. It's falling back and it, it's not got connections with anybody. And you're coming in as the people who are going to revive it. Is the British society in the Rose House completely separate? Are we seeing like just a completely separate society and basically kind of a, a, a stick on the side module? Or is it homogenized and are we seeing a connection between the societies? And so if we then go further on and we see different different countries being put in, so whether we see the Mediterranean societies coming in or whether we see a, an Asian society or an American society and stuff, are we going to see a homogenized connection across the board, do we think? Or is, is that something that's being brought in or is it literally just everyone's up for themselves? I don't so, know how much you can say on that. <laughs> I guess there are, there are there, there, there's elements of spoiler in it. Um there are plans, I say, you know, we're not official Free League, so whatever we say is just kind of our, our opinion, mm. um, and not it's not an official announcement. There's definitely plans to do more books uh, above and beyond Mythic Britain and Ireland. Um, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not, no, I think I'm probably not going to say anything at this point, I'm afraid. Ooh, um, I hate you. <laughs> I know. And, and I, think, I think one thing I don't, but probably could I kind of like the, the suspense. Either way, if there's a broad thing, is, is this a homogenous Linnaean society um, spread out of Uppsala, or is it something different but similar in the UK? Yeah. I think I think there's, there's enough choice there for, for GM to be able to say, okay, that this is how we, our society. One, one of the things that, if you look at the 19th, 19th century, sorry, is towards the end of it, you obviously get the invention of the, the telephone. Mm. And you get the invention of Morse code across the world. So you can see a faster communi- communication network building up. And one of the things when I, when I ran my Scottish game for um, the folklore people is this actually played an important part of where the Edinburgh society had come from and how they all communicated. Um, There's certainly nothing to stop you. No, that's one of the things I like about it. Picking your your players who are playing Swedish or Scandinavian society members and running them straight across to run the scenarios in Mythic Britain and Ireland with those set of characters. Mm. There's absolutely nothing in there to stop you doing that. I I think think because we stated that... Go ahead, Chris. There's also an interesting topic here about um, I mean, it depends how, how the society is presented, character play with British setting. Mm. I think that should be treated in the right way because obviously you've got the, and I, that I think that leads the point is actually it'd be very interesting to expand me on the, where possibly how the society has to the kind of things of colonialism because of course yes people have gone everywhere but does that mean that you've got Verson from everywhere? coming back to Britain because of the trade of mm. the, the empire yeah. and various relics that have pilfered, borrowed for, for is the wrong word, definitely <laughs> stolen <laughs> from all these countries. I think there's a lot of, um, there's a, there, there's a lot. The British Museum definitely needs a, a look at. There. There's a lot of scope for, uh, very interesting stories to be told along that theme. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So I like one of the things I always think about when I want to do this and I speak to people I know who've played this in America and they, they bring in the American folklore traditions. I'm instantly going to Neil Gaiman's um, American Gods and thinking, like, well, yeah, d- did that happen in the 18th century when, when, when we started to kind of have that crossover? Did, did people bring things across? And so we can then. Mm. So I think there's a lot of scope within that. That reminds yeah, me think... of the classic Supernatural episode where uh, a town, and, and it's the only one of the good episodes, it's actually like in one, I think. So <laughs> we're allowed to watch those episodes. Um, is they, <laughs> they have, um, it's all good and then it all goes shit. They, have, um, they deal with a town which is sacrificing um, a, you know, lovers, so young couple, to Nordic tree god. Um, oh, I remember that year. one, yeah. And when they do it, it takes the flesh of them to, to make a new body for a year. And essentially, it's a it's a, it's a scarecrow uh, that stalks this um, stalks this orchard and feed the blood of these lovers. This mm. the first tree. So you could definitely go that that seems very you know on point. And then and then also like Sleepy Hollow is Sleepy Hollow's you know headless horseman. Well, that's a that's a Dullahan, which is totally you know is an irish, irish mythology of, yeah. of, of, mm. of origin so and i guess it's no yeah. surprise that a lot of north american uh western imported folklore yeah, is yeah, of variations of the folklore that their ancestors brought yeah. with them of course yeah um, what's really yeah. interesting as well is if if you kind of go into uh, central and southern american um 
societies and look at their their modern folklore so the the more hispanic folklore it's there's this weird amalgamation of the traditional um folklore that has arisen from their their, their natives that has amalg- amalgamated with the the travelers the, the the people who've moved over there and colonized the place and they come up with some fantastic stories as well so you can look mm. at this kind of traveling and this amalgamation across the world of how these folk stories grow um so there's a lot of potential i feel within within the game itself to to go in and when when you look at the the artwork that johan is producing of other stories and things i think there's a lot that we can do with it um, being aware of of time um, yeah i was just going to say wrap uh, up um obviously so we've got i'm going to just do a rundown of what the context of this so we've got information about the british society its founders and its headquarters uh guest here of sprawling london that's a classic and adventure society uh a guide to the mythology of an island vacation the isles uh uh, a chapter, obviously, about various beings, background and story seeds. Then there is three uh, pre-written scenarios that you uh, play, one of which takes place in classic Wales across the border of uh, from my hometown, by the sound of it. Pronounce the name of it. Lantwillen. There we go. Lantwillen. Um, uh, it sounds like Lantwillen. 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 And then with Vazen Seasons Mystery, that we that's there a collection of scenarios. Yes, it's a collection of scenarios. So it's effectively the same thing as the Wicked yeah. Secret, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so that's that's four scenarios written by the the likes of Gabriel de Boer, who wrote uh, Wicked Secret in the original one. I think you yeah. wrote that one. Yeah. Um, and those are uh, are written as settings in the Scandinavian setting, but Matthew and I have been working on a little bit of work to translate them so you can play them in Britain and Ireland if you wish to. Uh, so we've, uh, very, we've added that. Very, the yeah, uh, yeah. really deep in scanned culture and, and yeah. folk custom. So yeah, in fact, um, we, we were asked, oh, could you just find four places where these could be set? And hmm. frankly... Well, if you need any really help, just hit me up. I'm, I'm sure I can uh, help you with those. I've got, I've got enough knowledge on these things. So, I, I think we sorted it in the end. But it, you know, I, I think very much it was an afterthought. Limited word count, very limited. Mm. I think we've done. Well, we'll leave you leave it up to you to see whether we've done a bang up. But, um, but, but yeah, on top of those two books, um, they've also hit. As I said at the beginning of the the episode, within the first 24 hours, they hit every single stretch goal that was in there. Um, and they've now been struck, rap- rapidly going, ah, oh, crap, 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 and throwing out a load more stretch goals, which have also all been hit. I think there's only three stretch goals. I think there's three stretch goals left at the moment, and one of those is one that I'm absolutely desperate for people to get, which is a solo play version of Vesson. So this allows you to play the game as a individual. You don't need a GM, and you can literally sit there and play it by yourself. And I think this would be an amazing way to play the game. And it's certainly something that I would love to have. So, um, cool. and as we say, I think it, it, it's a nearly half a million dollars, mm. um, which is way beyond what the original Kickstarter hit. So there's a lot of potential there. Go check it out. We'll put a link in the notes, I'm sure, um, when we do this. Yeah, there'll be a link in the show notes because as people be listening to this, it goes out this Friday, so there'll be like tick yeah. start. Um, but yeah, that, that's everything in there. Um, any final comments or thoughts or plug? James, any final thoughts? 
Um, I mean, you, gosh, like I can't really compete with uh with David uh, on his um <laughs> his folklore knowledge. Um, this has been it's it's been amazing. Like uh, honestly, it sounds it sounds like such a lot of fun. Um, uh, and I'm as always as soon as this stuff as we start talking about this stuff, my brain starts contemplating like what yeah what would I run? What would I do? Hmm. Um, which the Isle I think of is white. The answer is always the Isle of Wight, isn't it? The James? Mother Island will not let me go. There's such a, there's some amazing stories in the Isle of Wight, James. Have a yeah. look at them and run it. It's it's James a really written an Isle of Wight uh, story hook for um, Secret Fantasy Files back in the yes, day. Yes, he has. So, so you can quite easily translate it. And then it came true. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, cool. Me. Um, but yeah, to wrap up, um, obviously, if people want to stuff about games, they can go over to the Effect Podcast. Where can they find that? Well, Matt, you always do or, this bit. Or David, yeah, where can you find the Effect Podcast? Matt normally does this bit. Oh, is he gone? Okay, uh, you can find us at uh, uh, the Effect AP uh, on uh, Effect... Uh, effectpodcast.org or effectap.org for our actual play channel and we have episodes that uh, download every two weeks usually on a friday or a saturday so come and have a listen our, our ap goes out weekly we've got tons of ap content that we're just trying to have through and get out there but that goes out weekly but the magazine show is uh, fortnightly on a friday or saturday and um yeah come and have a listen we'd love to uh, love to have you on board and thank you, gents, for the invite. It's, it's, it's great fun talking about these games. So thank you very much for inviting us on to uh, a fabulous show. Since we're talking about Versen in particular, I do want to point out Summer in December, which um, is available on Drive-Thru RPG, which is an introductory adventure for Versen. Is that on the? Is that through free, free League or through their... It's through the Free League Workshop. Through, yeah, so go on to Free League Workshop, Drive-Thru RPG. There's some really cool stuff in there. I do. And who, who wrote that, Matthew? I wrote that, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Just get the plug. I might have to do a new edition with notes. a little paragraph saying, if you want to run this, then <laughs> yes. in, uh, I'm thinking Cold Christmas up near where? <laughs> I'm in Cold Christmas, that's to me. <laughs> Excellent. Um, obviously, um, thank you everyone for taking the time out to chat about this Kickstarter. Uh, there'll be a link. Oh, what's that? Obviously, if people want to get in contact with us, they can find us at uh, com. They can uh, find us on Twitter, at DarkDaysRadio. They can Instagram, at DarkDaysRadio. They can find us on Facebook, of course, the disc and there, where they can chat about all World of Darkness and Chronicles of Darkness and horror games and Warhammer games. Um, previously had episodes out about inclusivity and diversity in worlds of Warhammer. Uh, we've had episodes about Bretonians and playing pseudo-French in the Warhammer fancy old world. Um, and uh, and our upcoming Dark Hammer episode will like cover Necrons. Uh, and of course, Egyptian Mike will have... Space. And of course, Mike will have um, content and uh, audio from uh, PAX Unplugged took place just gone oh, yeah. in the US. Yeah. Um, but yes, there's lots of cool stuff coming out. Uh, it's busy again. Um, <laughs> it always comes. There's always a lull in in Darker Days Ray, and then suddenly we get really busy again. And my Christmas is going to be busy again because I'm going to be writing some more stuff, which I can't talk about right now. So anyway, um, yeah, that's it. So thanks for everyone taking part, and we'll uh, be back very soon. Goodbye for now. Goodbye. Bye, everybody.
This has been an episode of Darker Days Radio. Special thanks to Occam's Laser for the intro, outro, and new bumper music from their hit album, Nine Circles. Check out the rest of their work at occamslaser.bandcamp.com. Thank you.